last week I was driving through the community and I went past a house that had an entire yard filled with light up Christmas decorations. You may know the one that I'm talking about. Uh, among the various things in that yard were several angels, several reindeer, a couple of snowmen, I think an elf, uh, Santa in a sleigh, a train full of presents, a huge American flag, and a, um, in the middle of all of that, a tiny nativity set, the little Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. So imagine this with me. Imagine that you have a friend who has never heard about Christmas before, and you would ask that friend to meet you in front of that house, and you come and say, now, look at this. Based on what you see here, what would you say Christmas is all about? Now, um, maybe bringing this a little closer to home, imagine that you were to open up your December calendar and bring that same friend and, and have your friend look at your calendar. And you were to ask the question, so based on what you see here, what would you say Christmas is all about? It is so easy for the thing that is at the heart of it all to, to get pushed to the side and, and overlooked, isn't it? That's why this year we are celebrating what we are calling a simple Christmas at Covenant. Simple meaning uncluttered and undistracted. So there's not a lot going on that, that busies us and takes our heart away from the things that matter most. And simple meaning focused. Taking our eyes off those other things and putting them on the one thing that's at the center of the holiday. There are five simple ways that we are asking every one of you as part of the Covenant family to take part in our simple Christmas this year. Four gatherings at our place and one at yours. The four gatherings at our place, of course, are our four Sunday worship services over the course of this month. We want to encourage you to make a commitment now to be here for all four of those worship services. And not just to be here, but we want to ask you to plan to come just a little bit earlier than you might ordinarily and to linger just a little bit longer than you might ordinarily in order to give yourself the gift of enjoying the company of these amazing brothers and sisters of yours in this church family. And also as a way of being intentional to extend a welcome to our friends and our guests who will come to join us this month in our worship from the community. We think that your investment in these four worship gatherings will really help make this Christmas uniquely rich for you, as we've already experienced this morning. Our children did such a beautiful job in leading us in worship. So what about this one gathering at your place? We are asking everyone who is part of the Covenant family to open up your home to your neighbors sometime during the month of December. You know we've been asking for a long time that we would be finding tangible and practical ways for us to show love to our literal neighbors, to the people that God has placed on either side of us, in front of us, behind us, in our immediate neighborhoods. So this Christmas, we are asking the Covenant family to take a next step in loving our neighbors. It might feel like a little bit of a risky step, but I think it's one that every one of us can take.
And that is to open up our home in some way to our neighbors. To have them in your home for a classic holiday meal or movie, to have a game night or decorate Christmas cookies together, to have a family over for a Saturday morning pancake breakfast, maybe host a holiday open house for your neighborhood. So what will you do and who will you invite? I wanna encourage you to pray that through and now to make a decision to get it on your calendar and get out the invitations and to take that step as a way of extending hospitality to those that God has placed around us in the name of Jesus. Well, in our messages during this Advent season, as the children shared with us this morning, we're going to be revisiting the story of the very first Christmas and seeking to do that in a way where we all get to hear it again as though for the very first time. The story is preserved for us in the second part of the Bible, the section that we call the New Testament. The New Testament is a 2,000-year-old collection of writings from the time of the early church. Some of it historical accounts, others of it letters written to encourage one another as followers of Jesus in the early days of the church. And within that collection, actually starting the New Testament off, are four biographies of Jesus that are called Gospels. Gospel is an old English word that means good news. And the name of these come to us from the first verse in the first chapter of the first of these Gospels to have been written. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says, this is the Gospel. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The story of the first Christmas and its lead characters sort of naturally falls into four parts. So we're going to be looking at each part of the Christmas story over the next four Sundays. And the first part of the story focuses on a young couple whose names are Mary and Joseph. Our kids just did such a beautiful job of retelling their story. But what I'd like to do now is to take us back and, and actually have us listen to the story as it comes to us straight from these historical accounts. First, we'll hear Mary's side of the story taken from Luke's gospel, and then we'll hear Joseph's side from Matthew's gospel. So starting with Luke chapter 1, verse 28. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. And you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this be? I am a virgin. And the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say that she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month, for the word of God will never fail. And Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything that you have said about me come true. And now to Matthew's gospel to hear Joseph's story. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and didn't want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet. And then it quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 from the Old Testament. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did just as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. So what I'd like to do now is just to go back through this story briefly and just notice some things with you and ask especially what we can learn from Mary and Joseph in their example of welcoming Jesus into their lives. The story presents itself as a true story. But wow, when you first hear it, you are instantly hit with all kinds of questions, aren't you? Angelic beings appearing to human beings in dreams and visions. A child who fulfills ancient prophecies, who is conceived without any human involvement. A baby who is a human and at the same time more than a human being. It sounds more like Dune or the, the Marvel Universe than it does a true story. But this is a true story. This account is part of an accurate historical record that comes to us about the life of Jesus of Nazareth in the New Testament. And the reliability of the New Testament is far higher than any other ancient writings that we have. We have more copies and older copies of the New Testament than we have of any other historical record by far, making its claims much more reliable historically than anything else that we have from the period, including, for instance, the information we have about the life of Julius Caesar. This story happened at a real moment in time. As we go on in the story, as you'll hear, we are told that this happened within a very specific historical window. It happened while Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome, and it happened while Herod was the king of the Jewish nation about 2,000 years ago. This story happened in a real place, in the town of Nazareth, in the northern part of the country of Israel, at 
at latitude 32 degrees north, at longitude 35 degrees east, 6,180 miles from right here on the same planet. We're told that this town of, or we have discovered that this town of Nazareth was a tiny hamlet which was tucked in the hills well off the main road in a remote part of northern Israel. And it had a population of somewhere between 200 and 400. So think somewhere between Buck Creek and Americas. <laughs> Here's a picture of a recreation of the village of Israel as archaeologists believe that it would have looked when this story took place. So the story happens in what, from one perspective, is a little nowhere place in a remote corner of the country of Israel. But it happens, importantly, at a specific place and at a specific time. I remember during seminary, a dentist was working on my teeth, and we were having a spiritual conversation at the same time, and, uh, which is a bit of a challenge. And, uh, and he told me, as he was working on my teeth, that the reason he could not become a Christian, the reason he was convinced it wasn't true, is because of the specificity of the birth narrative. That it's, he said to me, why, of all places, Nazareth? Why not here? Why not now? Why not everywhere, all at the same time? To which I said to him, I kept waiting to kind of uh, jump into the conversation and pauses between his work. This is what I said to him. This is the very reason that you should believe that Christianity is true. Think about this. God, who is spirit, who is invisible, who is everywhere all the time, chose not to remain vague and, and inaccessible, tucked away in heaven, as good as nowhere because he was present invisibly everywhere. Instead, he humbled himself and he squeezed himself into a single human being in a single place on earth at a single moment in time so that he could be seen and known. So this is a true story that happened in a real place on our globe in a real moment on our calendar. And there were real people involved a Jewish woman named Mary, a Jewish man named Joseph, who both lived in Nazareth. And we actually know very little about either of them. Luke's gospel tells us that Mary was, was likely descended through her mother's side from the, the Jewish uh, tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, because we're told that Elizabeth, her cousin, was descended from that group. And also we know from John chapter 19, verse 25, that Mary had a sister because they stood together uh, before the cross when Jesus died. And that's about really about all we know about her. We don't know much more about Joseph. We know that from Luke's gospel that he was a member of the, the tribe of Judah and that he was a direct descendant of King David. And we also know about him from Matthew's gospel that he was a tecton, which means a person who, a craftsman who works with his hands. And that you may have been a stonemason, you may have been a carpenter, may have been both. 
What we know about the two of them together is that they lived in this little town of Nazareth, that they were devout Jewish believers. We see this from their custom of, of engaging in the pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, each year. They were engaged to be married, and they were committed to remaining pure in their physical relationship with one another until the time that they were married, refraining from sexual involvement with each other and with anyone else. What we also know from cultural customs of the day is that they were likely pretty young. In ancient Middle Eastern culture, the typical marrying age for women was between the ages of 13 and 16, and, and for men, the ages of 18 and 20. And while this falls way outside of the norm for our culture, in Israel, 2,000 years ago, when life expectancy was much shorter, the whole cycle of life started and ended sooner for them than for us. And so this was a kind of a normal practice in earlier marriage. So the stage is set. And now into the lives of these two ordinary human beings come two extraordinary events and two extraordinary beings. I just thought, I just want to stop. I love, um, I love that our high school students and college students uh, make it a point to come and sit together here during worship. This just blows me away thinking that Mary and Joseph would have been your age or even younger than you when all of this is taking place, which is incredible to think about. I just love that as a picture of how God delights to be involved in the life of every one of us and not just kind of when you graduate into adulthood. So into the lives of these two come these extraordinary beings and extraordinary events. One of the... Uh, the, the person who lies behind all that takes place next in this story is the God of the universe who we discover through hints exists eternally, through hints in this story exists eternally in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we are given glimpses in how this story unfolds of God the Father, the creator of all that exists, taking the initiative conspiring in love to redeem his creation and to reconcile humanity to himself, the reason that he created them in the first place, conspiring together with God the Son who will take on human form, God the Son eternally preexistent, one with the Father, co-creator of all that exists, now about to, to take on human form and carry out the Father's redemptive mission at the cost of his very own life. And the two of them, father and son, conspiring together with God the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, who works miraculously to empower the redemptive purposes of God, introducing the eternal son of God as a human being into the womb of a young woman. So God sends a messenger to tell these two what he is about to do. An angel named Gabriel. The Bible tells us that that angels are a race of spiritual beings whom God created to serve as his servants and his messengers in this world. They are spiritual beings rather than physical beings, but sometimes they take on human appearance in order that they might relate to human beings in this realm. More on angels next week when we get to hear their part of the story. So first an angel comes to Mary in a vision, then an angel comes to Joseph in a dream, and what an extraordinary message they have for these very ordinary young people. It's a birth announcement. 
Extraordinary first, because there is no physical human means by which a child would be possible between the two of them, but even more extraordinary because of who this angel tells them this child will be, a child like no other who ever has been or ever will be. And so now this central person in this story is introduced to us. What amazing things these angels tell Mary and Joseph about this child. This will be an extraordinary child with extraordinary origins, conceived not by two human beings, but by God himself and placed within Mary's womb. A child that we are told who will be both Mary and Joseph's son, described in that way, and at the same time, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, having both a human and a divine nature at the same time. We are also told that this child that Mary will carry and that Mary and Joseph will raise is a child whose coming has been waited for for centuries. This is the long-promised Messiah. The name Messiah means the King Their child is the one who will come to fulfill all of God's promises and all of God's purposes in human history. This child who is being introduced into their lives. And his coming has been promised again and again across the ages, anticipated by the people of God for more than 700 years. And all of those promises that were communicated about this child And the the promise that the angel brings to Mary and Joseph center on two purposes of God that he is accomplishing in this person of Jesus. He comes as rescuer. He is the promised savior. The angel tells Joseph that he will save God's people from their sins. And at the same time, he comes as ruler. He is the promised king. The angel tells Mary that This child will reign over God's people forever. Those two things turn out to be two sides of the very same act of redemption. The sin from which we need to be rescued is the sin of our rejecting God's rightful rule over us and of living a life of self-rule instead, pushing God off the throne and taking his place So Jesus comes to rescue us from our act of mutiny against the God who created us and to bring us back into a right relationship with God under his loving rule, living our lives for him as Savior and King. Now, imagine if you were Mary and Joseph trying to take in all this news. Their response certainly would have been one of being overwhelmed and in awe. Luke tells us that Mary was troubled deeply by the the angel's words of greetings and wondered what he might mean by what he said. They must have felt incredibly honored and humbled, full of joy at having been chosen to have this extraordinary role in God's redemptive purposes. But at the same time, their response must have been one of deep fear. Here they are, residents of a town that is half the size of this church, A teeny village where everyone knows everyone else and and everybody is involved in everyone else's business. And there would have been no place, no corner of anonymity in which to hide in that community from gossip and scrutiny and judgment. 
and conclusions that they would have made on the basis of a child arriving to Mary and Joseph. And it would not have been difficult for Mary and Joseph, even not knowing the specifics, to guess that the presence of this child in their lives, wonderful as it would be, would be greatly disruptive and costly. And so it proved to be. And yet, even in the midst of their confusion and their fear, even in the midst of the disruption and they cost the, the cost that they knew that this would mean for them both, Mary and Joseph, independent of each other, say yes to God. Yes to God's initiative. Yes to God's invitation. Joseph, in spite of fears that he may have had, that, that the text makes pretty clear that he had about what Mary may have done apart from him, and fear about how the village would respond. We are told in Matthew 124, when Joseph woke up, he did just as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took Mary as his wife. And Mary, in spite of fears that she likely had about what other people would conclude about what she or she and Joseph had done, and fears of what carrying this little child would mean, being ostracized and criticized and humiliated by those that she loved and knew, and having her heart wounded by this son and the sacrifices that would be required of him in the future. We are told in Luke chapter 138, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything that you have said about me come true. So let's just pause this story here. We'll pick it up again next Sunday. And I just want to shift the focus now uh, as we end to our stories and what God is doing in and with and through each of us. What God's invitation and initiative to us is. Because when you think about it, what God did in the life of Mary and Joseph, God wants to do in each of our lives in, in a way that parallels what he did with them. Just as he took the initiative with them, so he takes the initiative with us, inviting us to be part of his redemptive work in this world. And just as he came to them and announced a coming child, he comes to us and announces to us his desire for the Holy Spirit to do the miraculous work in us of bringing Jesus to life in us. He invites us to receive him and to carry him with us through life and to let his presence in our lives disrupt us and define us. He invites us to come to a place where we recognize Jesus as both Savior and King. The Savior who, who rescues us from, from a life of, of independence from God and mutiny against him. And the King who brings us back under God's heavenly and loving rule. He invites us, just as he invited Joseph and Mary, to say yes to him. Yes to his initiative. Yes to his invitation. amid all of the clutter of other things, this is that thing that Christmas is really all about. And 
amid all of the decisions that we will make this Christmas season, our saying yes to God's invitation and our welcoming God's son, our opening our lives by faith up to God and become children, becoming children of God ourselves, that is by far the most important of the decisions we will make. So what would it look like for you to welcome this child? What would it look like for you to, to say yes to God's invitation? If you have never responded to God's invitation, if you have not yet invited Jesus to come and to take up residence in you, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me now. I'll just pray out loud, you can pray silently along with me if this expresses the posture of your heart. So pray with me. Jesus, I believe that you are God with us. You are the long-promised Savior and King. And I believe that you came to this world to make God known and to bring us into relationship with him, the relationship for which we were made. And you died on the cross. You died to forgive my spiritual independence and to reconcile me to the Father. So I say yes to you now, Lord. I give you my complete allegiance and I surrender control of my life to you today. Lord, I and we together prepare room in our hearts for you. We receive you as King. Mm -hmm.